What's that look? I've never seen so many thoughts go on behind someone's eyes. Gratitude. Appreciation. What for? You make a better person of me. And you of me. Isn't that the point of marriage? Welcome to The Crown, the official podcast. I'm Edith Bowman and this is the show which follows the fifth season of the Netflix series The Crown episode by episode. We lift the lid and take you behind the scenes, speaking to many of the creatives involved, diving deep into the stories. Today we're talking about episode two, titled The System. In this episode, we discover Prince Philip's passion for carriage driving and we see the connection that develops between himself and a family friend, Penny. Prince Philip tries to make Diana understand that she must stay silent and learn to accept the royal system, just as he has. But does this work or is this book about to change the royal family forever? We'll cover specific events and scenes that feature in this episode. So if you haven't watched episode two yet, I suggest you do it now or at least very soon. Also, just a quick warning that this episode contains discussion of suicide and eating disorders. So listener discretion is advised. Coming up later, we'll hear from the brand new Prince Philip himself, Jonathan Price. I knew what to do with my hands. Mm -hmm. Also, you see me teaching someone else how Mm -hmm. to do carriage driving. And uh, you have to know how to hold the reins properly, even if there's a horse there. And it's all that that detail is important. We'll also meet the Crown's movement coach and choreographer, Polly Bennett. So for Imelda, she pressed her big toes into the floor. So she's engaged. It means her back straightens up, which means her back is engaged so she can move off quicker. And head of research for The Crown, Annie Salzberger, joins me to give all the details behind that book. But first, in this episode, we begin to see the differences between Diana's life as an outsider versus Prince Philip. Whilst Philip takes an interest in carriage driving and gains friendship away from Elizabeth... Diana hopes to find understanding and freedom by agreeing to work on a tell-all biography of her life. I wanted to learn more about these two parallel lives, so I sat down with the director of this episode, Jessica Hobbs, and I started off by asking about her perspective on this episode. Well, there's two parallel stories running, but they do coincide. One is Philip's Drifting from Elizabeth, I think it's it's after their many decades together, he's questioning what life he can have outside the regime that they have to follow by the necessity of who she is and what she does. And I think it's him carving a life for himself. I think the death of the youngest Natchville daughter and the connection with Penny that starts to develop from that opens up that door. And at the same time... Diana, who is feeling extremely alone, is offered an opportunity by someone who sees her from the outside, which is in Morton. So I see those as quite parallel stories. Different griefs, isn't it, really? Different griefs. That's such a good way. I wish I'd thought of that. That's a really good way of putting it. (laughs) It is different griefs. She can feel the end of the marriage coming and she wants to be heard. And I think for him, I don't think he wants to end the marriage at all, but he wants something for himself. Otherwise, I think he would have 
felt very isolated, mm. you know, in his own way. And so he creates this kind of, I mean, he'd done it through his carriage driving and through the friendships that he had, but this is a very specific one that develops over that time. There's lovely symbolism as well, I think, in Vediceps, whether it's the Royal York Britannia, you know, symbolises more than it just being a, a boat. And we have this lovely bird. The goshawk. Yeah. yeah. What, tell me a little bit about that and the the purpose of that throughout this episode and what it's sort of saying and symbolising. Well, what it started initially was Peter going, I really want there to be a bird. Jess, you'll think of something to do with it. And I'm like, okay. He's done that to me before. But actually, I knew what he meant. I really knew what he meant. And we talked a lot about it. And then we talked a lot about the type of bird it would be. We wanted something that was relatively rare, but also had a sense of magnificence to it and a sense of observation to it. For both of us, I think, Philip understands that he's being clocked, that he's just being tracked by something perhaps a bit bigger than him. And what we, I think both Peter and I loved about it is, it's not that he doesn't have faith, he really does, but he doesn't have faith at the level the Queen does. And so her faith is so impregnable, unbreakable. Mm -hmm. But I think he's got a great questioning in his and and he's come from Greek Orthodox into the Christianity and and we know that he's asked those bigger questions. So I felt that the bird was in some way tying us back to the astronauts in the sense Mm -hmm. of he's always reaching further out there. So he's he's clocking it. He can see it. It's it's much more about what he's noticing rather than the bird noticing him. Mm. We've got this great Diana and Philip scene in this episode where he goes to visit her in her Kensington apartment. I'm really fascinated by the relationship between these two. It feels kind of father-like. Yeah. She called him Pa in the letters that they wrote to each other. And I think it's very, it's complex and it's so wonderful to watch the kind of, I think he really believes he's doing the right thing. He's saying to her, you understand how it works, you you know. But he's slightly threatening near the end of yeah. it because he needs her to understand. Tonal shifts in that, isn't it? Yeah. You're not a novice anymore. You're long past the point of thinking of us as a family. That's the mistake people make in the beginning. But you understand, I think, it's a system. And we're all in this system. You, me, the boss, the cousins, the uncles, the aunts, the lepers. For better or for worse, we're all stuck in it. And we can't just air our grievances and throw bombs in the air as in a normal family. Or we end up damaging something much bigger and something much more important. The system. That was Jonathan's first scene. Was it? I know. It's amazing. (laughs) I think it's amazing. First for the whole thing? Yeah. Very first scene. Day three of shooting. He said, I'll be fine, I'll be fine. I said, I know you'll be fine, I know you'll be fine. He said, shall I walk here? I'm like, it's all good, it's all good, it's all good. And and the the power that he brings to it is really fantastic. And just lovely things that we're working out between the two of them. Because she was saying, shall I sit down? I said, I, I said, you sit down, he's not going to sit down. And I said, but if you sit down expecting him to sit down, that's going to do something really interesting to you. And you see her face as she's going down that he's, and he says no. And, it, you know, it's in the writing, it's implicit there, but it's also how to keep that alive for the actors. What are the choices that you make choreographically that show those kind of power balances happening? You know what it's like. You walk wow. into a meeting with someone and they say, have a seat, and you sit down, and you realise they're standing and you're like, this is going to go really badly. Yeah, like, you yeah, just yeah. know. Give me a bad news. Exactly. <laughs> but I liked it was both his appeal to her as someone he felt... 
He felt she was emotionally intelligent and could understand what he was talking about. And he and he was saying to her, you know, there isn't. It's not. We're not keeping you in a cage. You can have a lot of freedom. It's Just almost like going to look at me in a way. It's kind it's of completely. look. I, yeah, it's sort of. I did it. Yeah. So you. I figured it out. I yeah. can tell you. But follow my path. Don't go out to there. Don't go out to the public. Follow what I've done. And and to him, that's a kind of. I don't know. It's like when you're dealing with a teenager that you're perhaps really frustrated with sometimes. I don't know if you know about oh, the Cedar there, but How long have you got? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but there are certain times when you go, do I say anything? Do I not say anything? Yeah. And sometimes you just go, I've kind of got to tell you this because I've been through this in life mm-hmm. and I've just got to tell you what's up ahead. You can choose to ignore it, but it's not good what's coming. And and I and for me that's his intent in the scene is danger. Yeah. This is it's not just about me telling you what not to do, but when he's talking about the system, he's really explaining the system. But it's interesting because we're kind of, you know, we're taking those steps towards certain things and obviously panoramas in the in the in the future. But Morton's book was a big big moment, you know, and, and the the steps that she's moving towards working with him on this book. And yeah. And with James Coltus, because that was the other thing is we wanted to give her a proper friend, someone from the outside world who'd known her since she was younger. And what was that like? So we could see a different side of her and she's very relaxed with him and she's very funny and she's yeah. very cheeky and she feels safe. And there's not many people that she feels safe with. Particularly because she's worried about people listening to her conversations and that's starting to kind of, that's she, in her psyche. She knows, she's starting to get that, yeah, it is in her psyche and she's anxious about what that is. And I think, I, we don't know, but you could feel that there was a narrative building about her that was making her anxious and those things start to take hold and then they become a kind of truth in the bigger community and it's very hard to push back and I think she just could see and he could see as a friend I think this could be an opportunity for you and I and look Morton was brilliant he was a consultant he was Was fantastic yeah he was amazing and he you know he also gave us access to you know, all the stuff, you can see all her handwritten notes on the book, the stuff that she said to him. You know, there's, there's a lot of stuff that's, that, that is available. I mean, I know we've seen it in documentaries and things, but he was very fair and very clear about the process of what that was and her, her level of engagement and her care with what to say and what not to say. And it's hard, I'm sure, because it felt very explosive. But then panoramas around the corner, and we all know that. So yeah. the book is just a beginning. So the tip I want to give you is this. I mean, just just be creative. You can break as many rules as you like. You can do whatever you want. You can make whatever arrangements you need to find your own happiness. As long as you remember the one condition, the one rule, you remain loyal to your husband and loyal to this family in public. You mean silent? Yes. Don't rock the boat. We really see in this episode the beginnings of her paranoia that she's been watched and listened to whenever she's on the phone. She's sure she can hear someone else on the line. And of course, the difference of her public life, where she's now one of the most loved women in the world, to her private life, the loneliness, the vulnerability when she's at home and this almost sense of despair, which I guess is why she decides to work with Morton on the book. How did you work with Elizabeth Debicki 
for this episode in particular? I mean, we started by having long, long Zooms. She was in Australia and I was in London. And I think, look, in some ways it helped. We're both Antipodean, so we cut through a lot of stuff. And Elizabeth actually went to drama school with my brother. Oh, so wow. I'd known her. They're really close friends. So there was there was an immediate trust in a way, which was, yeah. very, and I'm very grateful to her for that because she came in with a very open kind of heart. It's very challenging playing someone that everyone believes they know so well, but also imbuing it with something of yourself. And that was what I kept trying to bring it back to. What does it mean for you? You, you, Elizabeth, what can you relate to out of this that can kind of land it? Because when it becomes external, she can still do it brilliantly, but it's less moving for Mm. us as an audience. And so a lot of it was, was understanding the challenges of being in in that kind of environment, how you would have to act on a daily basis, what that would mean that you might have to suppress of yourself and how that might bubble out. I mean, the other thing she did, which was brilliant, is at one stage, because you know, we did the read through and everyone was like, oh, the voice is extraordinary. And she, was, she said to me afterwards, yeah, look, I've got the voice. I can do the voice. But what I need to be able to do is know that the voice is there. Is if I'm kind of throwing stuff around the couch or I'm giggling with the kids in front of the TV, I don't want to just be doing the panorama version of yeah. her. I need to just free it up. So she did a lot of work with Polly Bennett, who I love, who did the movements with her. And that physicality really kind of freed her up. And she was very funny with that. At one stage she said to me, I just need to go and spend, and she did it. She said, I need to spend four hours in a big room where I can do it, where I'm screaming or I'm laughing or I'm, you know, sitting eating a meal with friends and blah, blah, blah. I just need that kind of stretch of breath. And that was, that level of commitment I thought was kind of extraordinary. And it meant that when she got on set, because of course for Elizabeth, our entire first week was all her and her apartment. That was a big... Yeah. <laughs> it's like, here's the plank, off you go. <laughs> yeah. um, and often on her own. And I thought she was brilliant. A lot yeah. of that stuff in episode two where she's reading the stuff that she'd written to Morton and those, those tapes, mm. we were just doing that slightly on the fly, she and I, like doing little set- setups and, and grabbing little bits and pieces, some of which Peter had written and some of which we'd just grabbed from research and things. And I just loved the way that she did yeah. that. And again, the you know, she's laughing at some of the stuff she's thinking about herself, yeah. how she hated her nannies and things. So <laughs> yeah. it just pulls it out of that... What we know is such a small band, you know, and it's not that we even do know for certain, but we're just trying to give as much depth and complexity to this person that we all love and all feel we know. Tall with glasses. Mm. Mm, I know the one. Clark Kent. He said his name was Andrew. Yeah, it's just what I call him, silly. <laughs> Andrew Morton. I'm just one of the friendly ones. He's written some nice things about me in the past. Well, now he wants to write a whole book about you. What it's really been like marrying into the royal family. The truth behind the fairy tale. I said you'd never agree to be involved in something like that. Oh, no. So then we arranged to play a game of squash. What? You saw my racket in the corner of my office and suggested a game. James. Don't worry. I said any further discussion of you was totally off limits. It better be. I'll call you after I've seen him. Now, as Jess mentioned, working with movement coach Polly Bennett is so important for the cast on The Crown. Many of the actors I've spoken to since doing this podcast have mentioned how invaluable her work is to help them embody the character that they're playing. I was so excited to finally meet her and get her on the podcast and asked her, well, what day-to-day life as a movement coach entails? 
So as a movement coach, I work with the actors who come through the crown and give them space to physicalise all of the ideas that they have from research and uh, through their audition process Mm. and also what's demanded from the script. So obviously people are playing real people. So there's the kind of pressure and the ideas that people have about how those people act and how they move. And my job is to try and practicalise that for the actor so it doesn't just get stuck in their head and they start thinking about tilting their head one way or, you know, using their hands in a certain way rather than actually connecting to their body and the emotional psychosomatic thought that leads to the the movement. It's part of the storytelling. Huge amount, a, a huge part of it. And I think, you know, let's not forget that people come through audition processes or they get the job and then suddenly... They can't just go on set. There's a huge amount of work that has to happen. So I come in and work with people, you know, if they want it, it's always offered. And then usually spend a couple of hours with them. And I'm able to kind of help landscape the scenes according to the things that I've seen in my research. You know, there's a kind of acknowledgement in some book I've read somewhere that every person, you know, you, me, the Queen, exists as 14 to 16 different rhythms a day. So you are never the same in any situation. Elizabeth as Diana and uh, Dominic as Charles, we have to find the different rhythms that those characters work at. And that's where the imaginative work comes in. And so there's those moments where we we look at and go, okay, well, she moves her left hand here and she does this, da-da-da-da-da. Whereas we have to take what we see in those moments and go, how would that be in a different environment? So the big thing I find myself talking to anyone playing members of the royal family is about just applying your brain to the idea that you are being watched and seen constantly. So if I had somebody watching me all day, I would absolutely do limited, limited things <laughs> to not be judged, yeah. you know? <laughs> so to not to not give anyone any material to think differently than yeah. what I believe is the kindest version mm-hmm. of myself. So that's kind of, you know, that was a, a real kickoff for Imelda playing the Queen, you know, just putting her in a space where I was just going, hey, the walls have eyes. There's eyes everywhere. So you have to limit what you do. You have to, you think of cameras going off. You don't want to be caught pulling a face or pulling a position that can be viewed as something else. So then you you give those sort of images and then take them away for when people are in private spaces. And so, again, the stakes of being in a private space are much lower, more more low than myself. Yeah. Because I've not been, I don't have the opposite, which is Mm -hmm. being seen all the time. So, yeah, so it's you know, th- that was particularly fun with Diana because we'd have her lounging upside down on sofas and sitting on the edge of things that she wasn't meant to. Slouching. Slouching, absolutely, because she unconsciously or subconsciously enjoying the idea of not being seen. Wow. Mainly the work with Imelda was to elevate that feeling so that the idea that everything that she does can give information away that she doesn't want to. You know, and there's things with how the Queen holds her handbag and when she might move it to a different hand. And it's sort of hearsay, I don't know if this is true, that she would move her handbag to another hand when she wants her aides to come and save her from a conversation or it's (laughs) a signal for her to go. 
and also the idea of what's in her handbag, of like what is important for her to have on her that makes her feel safe. Because even though she's lived in, she's got this lived experience of the most famous woman in the world, I don't like it all the time, you know? Yeah. So she's a human at the edge of it that needs to grip onto something to give her something else to think about. Yeah. So it was more, you know, we, we worked on our own little system of that for herself. Yeah. As well as how she stands and, and, you know, the idea that she's always ready to go rather than sitting back into her heels and having that moment of breath before she yeah. leaves. She's always ready to go. So for Imelda, she pressed her big toes into the floor. So she's engaged. It means her back straightens up, which means her back is in, engaged so she can move off quicker. If your weight's in the back of your feet, if you want to, you know, if you try it at home, you stand with your <laughs> weight, weight in the back of your feet, you've got a little hesitation before you're able to step off. So for Imelda, it was about just putting herself in that position, putting the, her body weight in the middle of her feet. Do we know what's in the handbag? Well... <laughs> I mean, we know. <laughs> well, we've decided, you know, we decided. And, you know, that changed for Olivia as it changed for Imelda. And I think that's theirs oh, to share. Amazing. That's, okay. Yeah, that's, that's theirs good. To I'm going to dig on that one yeah. for sure. I have to ask you about Charles just quickly. I want to ask you about Charles's walk and the hands. You know, the kind of. I mean, I found myself doing it the other day and I was like, what does it say? Why am I doing that? Mm. Walking with your hands behind your back and mm. holding your wrist. That's what, mm. that's what it is, isn't it? Yeah. And he's always done it. Or has he? Well, <laughs> uh, Prince Philip does it. <laughs> so you look, you look at footage of Prince Philip walking and he regularly has his hands behind his back and he's holding his wrist, as you're saying. But the, the, the thing for me that was is interesting about that is that the tops of his hands aren't touching the suit so it's actually just the kind of nubbin of the of the wrist that's touching his back so I turn that you know this is where my imagination kicks in I'm like well it's to not crease the suit because if you put your hands on your suit you're going to crease the suit Mm -hmm. or you're going to start playing with the material and Mm -hmm. it's fidgety and it gives off too much information so for Mm -hmm. the generations for for Josh and for Dominic and for Tobias and for Jonathan (laughs) that's the kind of note that I gave and it might not be that that's how it exists in their brain anymore because they've done their own work but that was kind of the reason behind it of course there are I can say to an actor okay just put your hands behind your back like this and that's kind of what he does and I think Josh O'Connor spoke a lot about our discovery of when Charles gets out of a car and <laughs> checks his, does his sort of keys, money, phone kind of routine. <laughs> yeah. But for him, because he's not carrying his keys and his money in his phone because, you know, yeah. they're not allowed. Um, you know, touching his pockets, touching his handkerchief in his top pocket yeah. and then um, cufflink. And then he does a little wave. You know, that sort of routine it is ingrained in his being because he's been around his dad and he wants to or we can imagine he wants to be like his dad and so yeah so for Charles it's hands behind the back or it's hands in the pockets and when he's in conversation, my voice changes just because <laughs> just, I'm doing the action. Charles, I know, yeah. I know. But it's a weird thing because I, I always say this is that like I'm not an actor, but if I think practically about what he's doing, so in the Dimbleby interviews, Prince Charles is sitting in a very low, low seat, mm-hmm. whereas 
Princess Diana in her Martin Bashir interview was sitting in a high seat with an armrest. And so already I'd look at those two things side by side and see what behaviours come. What does the touching of the fingers imply? Do you well, think? What, it, it's, what does it's it do when for... he thinks... He thinks, and we we also, you know, um, I'm making, I'm pressing my fingers together and making a sort of chapel. We called it chapel hands because it's a way of going, please help me, as if he's put pressing his hands together. But he can't do that because he can't go, ah, please help me, I'm so yeah. uncomfortable. So instead, he's pressing his anxieties through his fingers, and that's what I read from wow. when you watch him in that interview. Is that he's pressing the information through his fingers to try and. So even if you were to do this now and just press your fingers together, it makes you it, something happens in your head. Yeah. <laughs> so we took it's that. Kind of become as, a bit stronger. Exactly. So we're giving that to an actor who's like, okay, I'm looking for strength here, and then that helps infer how they're speaking and the dialogue that they've got to work with. So you see, it's sort of inferring what that means and passing it on to an actor so that a hand movement doesn't just become a mimic, it becomes a reason. Well, it's time now to head over to the Crown's research department for our new feature for this season of the podcast. Let's ask Head of Research Annie Salzberger the questions we've all been wondering about. Annie, what came out in the Andrew Morton book and how was it written? Okay, I'm going to start with how was it written. Okay. So Andrew Morton was a royal correspondent for various newspapers. He also wrote books. He wrote a very kind of easygoing book on Diana in the late 80s. And he was part of the circuit. She knew who he was a little bit. But he becomes friends with one of her good friends, Dr. James Colthurst, in the late 80s. And we don't know if he did it because he was courting him or whatnot, but they met each other on one of her tours of a hospital that James Colthurst worked at. And then they started playing squash together and hanging out. And it's in 1991 when he says, hey, I'm thinking of writing a book about Diana. Do you think I could sort of have her cooperation? And it's that the same time, it was the second honeymoon that we show. And she's very angry with the state of their marriage and with the way in which his, Charles, his private secretary, sort of spinning news of the marriage. So using the second honeymoon to say, look, aren't they so in love? No, they're not. It was not good. Mm. So when they say, when Morton says, I'm going to possibly write a book about her, she's like, okay, maybe I could help here. Maybe this is the time. So what he does, so that he's not lying when he says, I never interviewed her, when he defends the book, he asks James Colthurst, James Colthurst, to, to take his questions to Diana at Kensington Palace. And they're very good friends, so no one's going to be suspicious that James is coming by. And she will record her answers on tape. He will then take the tapes back home. Morton will come over to his house. James will give Morton the tapes to listen to them and there, and he will transcribe. And so it's essentially an autobiography because she is providing him with all of this personal information that's never been public at all. And she's also giving him access to her best friends and her closest confidants. So it's the closest thing that we have to an autobiography by Princess Diana before her death. So it comes out. I mean, he is stunned by her candor, as is the rest of the world, when it starts to be serialized in 1992 in the Sunday Times. But they decide to publish it in Finland for security purposes, 
the book because so many people on Fleet Street have now woken up to the fact that this is going to happen and that she might be behind it. So they publish it in Finland and it's serialized in the Sunday Times. And in it, she tells all, you know, that she knew about the Camilla relationship from the start, that she was bulimic. A lot of people didn't even know what bulimia was at the time. That moment where Andrew Morton actually is, you know, Coulter says Andrew Morton didn't had to look it up. He did. He had no idea what bulimia nervosa was. She claims she threw herself down the stairs. She tried to kill herself five times. The royal family never was there for her. Charles never loved her. I mean, it's interesting because there's one point when Morton says, I can't publish this unless you give me evidence for something. And that's the Camilla affair. So she... She steals private correspondence from Charles's briefcase in Balmoral and shows them, essentially, or copies of them, and says, is this enough to Morton and the publisher and their lawyers? And they say, uh, it's proof of a relationship, but it doesn't really prove it's sexual. So they review them and say, okay, we think we can get away with alluding to a special friendship. Diane is pretty furious at the compromise, but she accepts it because we all know what that means. So they're willing to go on record with that. And mind you, nobody knows she's involved because shes they're not claiming it's an autobiography. So its at the start, it's completely discounted as just pure fantasy, written by someone who hates the sort of Charles Court. And all of his friends come out and supporters and say, and, and newspapers that support Charles and say, this is utter rubbish. But then she goes to visit her friend Carolyn, who is a primary source for the book and is credited as such in a show of good faith. Like, yes, it is true, because if it weren't true, I wouldn't be visiting her. I would have struck her off as a friend. Mm -hmm. So she's essentially adding a legitimacy to it. So from that moment on, Elizabeth and Philip, who had always been rather just like, make it work, make it work, make it work. We can't divorce this family. The Church of England, you're going to be, you know, the head of the church when you ascend to the throne. You can't be divorced. You just have to make it work. They say, okay, if we can't divorce yet, then fine, we're finally behind separation because we get it. This is not manageable anymore. You can't just return to the status quo with her. There needs to be some indication to the public that, yes, this couple is no longer romantically involved, but they're going to take their public duty seriously and they're going to stay married for the public. But what's really useful with Morton to keep in mind is this is one person's version. For example, she never admits her own affairs and she's had four by this point. So she places a lot of blame on Charles about him being adulterous, but she completely omits all of her indiscretions. I mean, to the point where I, I don't think Morton knew about them. She just hid them all. So you have to keep that in mind. This is a confessional from one perspective. And, you know, Charles would counter that with other authors, his Dimbleby, for example. And each one of these, this is not the truth. This is their truth. And it's obviously rather flawed. And finally, it's time to hear from the brand new Prince Philip for this last iteration, played by the iconic Jonathan Price. I was thrilled to chat to him on set at Elstree Studios in Diana's astonishing apartment. Now, Jonathan is no stranger to interpreting real-life people, so I asked him what it was like when he took up this role in particular. Pretty much the same as when I got a phone call to say they want you to play the Pope. I thought I'd be on a hiding to nothing. Um, and then I met, you know, the people involved with the Pope, and I thought, yeah, this is something I want to get involved with. And it was pretty much the same with uh, Prince Philip. There was something 
that I didn't know about there deep down. I thought I'd like to be asked, mm-hmm. just so I could say no. But I, um, <laughs> I'd, I'm not a, a monarchist at all. And when the Crown was first on, I thought this is someone I don't want to watch. You know, I thought it'd be uh, another version of Downton or something that I thought I wouldn't be that interested in. Yeah. But like Downton, I got hooked after watching the first episode. I'm sure Peter Morgan wouldn't like the comparison with Downton, but there you go. <laughs> yeah, I w- we watched the first episode and just out of curiosity, uh, thinking I, w- I wouldn't carry on watching it. And it was so good. You just kept watching it. You know, I'd grown up with the royal family. I'd watched when I was six. I'd watched the coronation on um, the, one of the first televisions in our street where my mother had put the blackout curtains up from the war not long before and I remember lying on my stomach with a little toy cannon that fired matchsticks and I was firing them at the television Um, and I had my gold coronation coach with the white horses somebody gave it to me and obviously my coronation mug you still got them they're somewhere I know they're somewhere in a box so anyway, all this is, you know, no, I didn't think I'd want to be involved with it initially, but it was meeting, I, I then met Peter Morgan, and it was him talking about how the arc of the, the character would go in the next two, well, certainly in the next series, five. I don't know much about what's going to be involved in six yet. Did he give you a script to read, though, at that? when he was No, no, okay. no, there was, no, there was nothing. Just purely um, conversation, that's amazing. Yeah, yeah. You know, I I, I trusted him mm. because of the everything else that had been the rest of the series. I knew that it's, it's you know it's so incredibly well made and produced, and it you know I I don't regret saying yes at all. When you when you said yes, yeah. <laughs> where did you start in terms of your preparation for Philip? Well, I I played quite a few real life people in the past and I if they're not uh, contemporary and if there's no uh, video of them I rely on the the writer I'm not a great reader Uh, I don't read for pleasure and I tell myself well Peter Morgan's done all this work and what I am presenting is the script Mm-hmm. You know, even if it's a piece of fiction, it's I'm, I will be honest and truthful to the script. And it was also a way of telling myself that I'm I'm just playing another character. Mm-hmm. I'm not I'm not being Prince Philip. I'm being a version of Prince Philip, and I'm being my version of Prince Philip, who in my head has to be a, a fictional character because it's uh, it, you know it's not a documentary. It's a yeah. it's a drama, mm-hmm. and I am. And as is Peter, making incredible assumptions about this man, about what his inner life is. Of course, that's been the value of the crown anyway, is that they present an image, usually sympathetic, to what the, that person may or may not be thinking and feeling, because the, the facts are a given. We know they get online and shake hands with a lot of people. They, we know they dance at Balmoral, and all thanks to um, Philip letting the cameras in. But I always rely on the script. But what I don't have of Philip is any video of him sitting at home pissed off in any way (laughs) about his life. But I have the public image of him. Mm -hmm. And so that's when there's the invention. What 
makes this man behave in a, a certain way. And he's much more... I wasn't that aware of him, mm-hmm. to be honest. All we knew about him was what... Uh, the, well, the most we knew about him was what was on the TV news every time he visited a foreign country and made a, a, a gaffe. Mm-hmm. And then the more you see it, you look at him, you see him meeting people. And it was the one of the things that made me worry about playing him was you see that he's a man among men. And I've never been, a, a, I mean, you know, I don't see myself as this uh, very... It goes like to be a sporting character or whatever. Hail fellow, well met, and he's a he's a man, you know. That everyone's Military. image of a man. Yeah. And I thought, oh God, I can't, I can't do that. I can I can do the the weak man who becomes strong or whatever. So that was interesting to pursue that line with Philip uh, to find out a little bit more about what made him tick, should we say, mm-hmm. and you find the audience will find it quite late on in this series. And that's, it's an interesting, going back to, I think, think your question was this journey he was on. You, that, that's an interesting arc to go with him, to begin to understand him more. Yeah. And why he was, uh, why, yeah, why he, who he became. Mm. Did you know at the time who your queen was going to be? I did, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and that's great. So I've known Imelda for over... 35 years wow. more. We worked together, I think it was the last time we worked together, first and last time was in Uncle Vanya in the West End in 80, 89, I think it was. She'll be fine. Good. Yes. I told her that if she were a little more clever, a little more strategic, she could find all the happiness she needs in this system without anyone being any other wiser. Is that the solution, do you think? That husbands and wives should keep secrets from one another? Secrets? That's not a very nice word. No, um... No, what I mean is, you know, if, if people were, well, more considerate, more mature, more discreet, it can actually be the glue that binds it all together. You see, I think in a marriage one should aim to exist without secrets or accommodations. Uh, well, that's because you are who you are. And not just because any husband or wife can feel when something is awry, but ultimately, it's not what I know about you or even what you know about me. It's what he knows about all of us. I think he has a night off occasionally. I mean, she's been great to work with. I mean, her acting's okay, but uh, it's the bits in between because uh, she makes me laugh. She's very witty, very funny. And the nice thing is that when we've laughed together, it's never been about the work. It's always about something else. (laughs) So there's never been a case of, you know, sending it up or making jokes about the Philip or Elizabeth. But no, she's. I think she's wonderful. And it's been interesting to watch her grow into the queen Mm from, you know, almost day one until when we were last filming in Moscow, supposedly, Mm -hmm. and she was giving this uh, speech and she was um, every inch the queen. She's wonderful. She's great. It's really interesting about the the different relationships that he has in this season. And 
how that relationship with Elizabeth, you know, where we find them at 47 years of marriage and what that relationship has become at mm. that point and how he has a duty, they have a partnership and how it's important we find him, particularly in episode two, where he's at this point where he needs to find his own voice in a way. He needs to find his own thing that's his. Mm. And that's through his racing. Mm -hmm. And we see you in your carriage racing. And I'm assuming that's you and not a Jonathan it's Price double. I do all yes, my own stunts. stunts. I love it. Of course you do. <laughs> I want to talk a little bit about that, if you don't mind, yeah. about the, the carriage racing. and No, what I did. I, I went and uh, trained. Uh, you can only go so far because it's hugely complicated and difficult with guiding, steering four horses at once. But the people I've trained with, the people who, they do all the horse stunts, they, they do Game of Thrones, they've done other things that I've been involved in, and they're called the Devil's Horsemen. And one of their preoccupations over pastimes is carriage driving, and they drive and were part of Prince Philip's gang. Oh, wow. And so they... I mean, they didn't. They talked a little about him, but what they did say about him was hugely informative because they just said what a great guy he is, and he's a lot of fun, mm. and they they loved him. And so, age fifty, I decided to give up the big sporting love of my life and look for new challenges. Come on, <laughs> which is how I ended up carriage driving. And yeah, I did. I did some actual driving with horses until you get to the film set, and of course they won't let you near a horse because of the insurance and all kinds of things. And so I was towed by towed by a truck. But because of the training I'd done, I knew I knew what to do with my hands. Mm -hmm. Also, you see me teaching someone else how mm -hmm. to do carriage driving, and uh, you have to know how to hold the reins properly, even if there's little horse there and it's all that that detail is important yeah. and even when you're faking it you've got to fake it you know as real as possible and there's one sequence where i have got my reins on the horses and we're going around uh and through water not jumps the opposite whatever, water shoots whatever and um i was having a great time but the real driver was hidden behind me with the real reins <laughs> and i had a fake but it was uh could you see what he liked about it oh yeah yeah oh it's it's the horses are very powerful and they have minds of their own and it's very dangerous and you know even he fell off and overturned and all kinds of things no it's very exciting it was like being on a a funfair ride it was great when you were considering taking the part and you were thinking about what it was going to be like to work on The Crown. What was that versus the actual reality of being part of the show? Well, I, it didn't take me long to say yes. <laughs> it really didn't. And I, I, no, I, I felt positive about it all the time. If there were things I was nervous about, it was to do with me, not with The Crown. And it's whether I could, whether I could do it. And I would go home after the first, well, <laughs> nearly all the way through. <laughs> I've never been so uncertain about something I'm doing, ever. And I would go home and uh, be in a, not, not too depressed, but concerned that I wasn't getting it right. Or, and in some ways, that's quite a good thing. 
I think in retrospect, mm -hmm. that I wasn't overly confident because I'm portraying a man who, yeah, on the outside is overly confident, but on the inside is going, I don't know if I'm doing this right. I, maybe I should be doing something else, maybe. So you're always questioning yourself as yourself and you're questioning as a character. Yeah. Yeah, so you, I'm going to be interested to see it because I've not seen, I don't look at myself uh, while we're, Filming. I don't go and look at the monitor at all. And when I finish in makeup, and I, I can barely look at myself in the mirror. Really? Yeah. But um, but and what I what's interesting? What I say? I don't see me at all. Not at all. And for me, that's uh, it's something new because my Kate, my wife, if she ever has any criticism of me, which is very little. She used to say about, why do I... You always tend to make the character yourself, mm -hmm. bring the character to me. And I wasn't aware I did that, but thinking back, it's... You know, I find I try and find something of me in every character I do, yeah. but Philip, it's um, something that's completely outside my ken, and it, it's been very interesting. So I'm, I'll be interested to see it. I'm Edith Bowman and I'd like to give a special thanks to our guests on this episode, Jessica Hobbs, Polly Bennett, Annie Salzberger and Jonathan Price. The Crown, the official podcast, is produced by Netflix and something else in association with Left Bank Pictures. Join me next time when I go behind the scenes of episode three of season five of The Crown, titled Mumu. Egyptian businessman Mohammed Fayed is desperate to become part of the British establishment, but will he ever be accepted by the royal family? If I may say so, whatever thoughts you might be thinking, I imagine they're no different from the thoughts the Duke had about the royal family almost every day he was alive. What are you talking about? Muhammad al fayed just made the Queen of England very happy indeed. Subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts.